When you picture a robot, what images come to your mind? Is it R2-D2 or C-3PO? Maybe a Roomba or the Terminator? None of that's unusual, but it's also mostly not real life. In today's world, we do have robots, automation, and AI everywhere, just not in the way people think. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Ian sat down with Guy Kirkwood, the chief evangelist at UiPath, and Jordan Collard, the CEO and co-founder of Jolt Advantage Group, to talk about the robots they're working on in the RPA industry. RPA stands for Robotic Process Automation, and it is working its way into Fortune 500 companies at a rapid pace as everyone tries to find more ways to work efficiently and with more speed. Together, the trio explores how RPA is implemented and they go through the use cases that prove that you can go from a task taking 16 days to it being done within four hours. Plus, they discuss the future of the industry and how to get more people interested and invested in the technology. Enjoy the conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Did you know that Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org, and we have a special episode. This is going to be a fun one. We're talking about robots, but not in the way that you might think because we're going to be talking about RPA. But first, we're going to get into our first of two guests. Guy, how's it going? Good. Thanks, Ian. Uh, pleasure to be here. Excited to have you. And Jordan, how are you? Doing very well. Thanks, Ian. Uh, very excited about today. All right. So for the listeners, um, let's get into your current roles and what you're working on. Um, Guy, let's start with you. What are you working on at UiPath? Okay, thanks, Ed. Um, so we have raised um, about a billion, or just over a billion dollars in funding um, over the last couple of years. Um, that's a scary figure. Um, so what are we doing with it? Um, we're not hiring a whole load of salespeople. Um, we're working on, on really three buckets of activity. Um, first one is AI, uh, and we can cover that in more detail. Second one is education. Uh, at all levels. Uh, and the third one is partners, uh, which is where Jordan and his uh, team come in. So um, in those, within those three buckets, there's a huge amount of activity done by our 3,300 people in the business. And we're all aligning behind those because we see automation and RPA uh, with the infusion of AI as being um, material, not only to work, but also potentially to society. And Jordan, what about you? What, um, what is your role as, as CEO at Jolt AG? Well, uh, <laughs> I don't think we necessarily have a roles and responsibilities uh, in terms of black and white uh, defined, but um, I think we have, a, we have a lot of things going on. The first thing is strapping, uh, strapping onto the rocket ship that Guy talked about, right? Um, we're, we're, we're definitely in line with some of the um, activities that UiPath is doing. You know, one of the big things is, is spreading the awareness, right? We have a lot of uh, good customer base that we've worked with for years that trust us. And, you know, we're bringing RPA to market. Um, one of the things we're actually doing with UiPath is we have 25 uh, workshops across the country where we're helping spread the awareness of RPA and do what we're called take home a robot workshop. So that's one of the big things that I'm working on, basically traveling every week, going to uh, major metropolitan areas. And the second thing that I'm really focused on is scaling our workforce. Um, we've grown 
uh, significantly in terms of headcount in the past, uh, let's call it 18 months. And one of the things that we really wanted to focus on was building out our internal capabilities versus um, hiring them from the outside. So one of the big things we have done is uh, partner with a lot of different universities and working on curriculums uh, to basically bring in some of those college graduates as well as interns to scale up the Jolt digital workforce. Yeah, one of, one of the things that I spotted on, on your LinkedIn profile, Jordan, was that uh, about three weeks ago, you hosted a uh, Women Who Code um, event, and that's just fantastic. I was, in, uh, I was in Bucharest last week, and we had a, um, a crowd of students uh, from Exeter University over visiting our, uh, our immersion lab, uh, and 70% of them were, uh, were ladies, were, were girls, and that's just superb. So getting that gender balance within the software market is so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. We were very excited to have them uh, last week in Atlanta. It was, a, it was a great event. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the reasons we're so excited to have you both on is because so much of, you know, complex software, you know, oftentimes is kind of done like this. And with something as revolutionary, as transformative as uh, RPA or robotic process automation, you know, the way that UiPath goes to market, I think is really interesting, but also just the way that, you know, so people know how they can actually, you know, work with UiPath in, in the future, I think is critical. Um, but I want to take a step back and talk about RPA as, as an industry. So Guy, you know, you've been working on this for a while and I'm curious, like what is, for, for our listeners who don't know, what is RPA and, uh, and what is the kind of current state of the industry? Okay. Um, so RPA, robotic process automation, um, the term was invented actually by Blue Prism, um, Pat Geary of, uh, of Blue Prism, who's their CMO, um, came up with the idea of uh, robotic process automation, uh, along with Phil First of, uh, of HFS. And Phil wrote, about, wrote a really good paper, um, Welcome to Robotistan, uh, right at the start of the market, and, uh, and talked about the impact that uh, automation was going to have on outsourcing jobs. Um, that's where it started. So RPA is the ability, you can think of it like an operating system, really. So all of the applications, the systems that companies um, have within their, uh, within their organizations all have different ways of communicating with others. And in a lot of cases, they don't communicate at all at a, uh, at a machine-to-machine level, an API level. So one of the things that, uh, that RPA um, started doing was moving information through and between those systems automatically using the user interface, hence the name UiPath, so user interface path. Um, the, the background to it was that uh, Daniel Dinez, our, uh, our chief executive and co-founder, um, was working with Microsoft uh, out in Redmond, um, and he spent five years uh, developing automation through the user interface for Microsoft. In fact, he has a couple of patents to his name. So when he returned home to, uh, to Bucharest in Romania um, in about 2006, he, um, he set up a business to do that, developing software development kits for other software developers. And it wasn't until um, really 2013, 2014, that he realized that, uh, that what he had, uh, what the team had developed, was RPA. Um, and we've been growing since then. But RPA, you can think of it, I mean, pejoratively, it was considered to be sort of macros on steroids. Um, so if you, if you think if you write a macro for, a, for an Excel sheet, um, you can consider RPA to be a macro across every um, organization and every system that sits within those organizations. And that's really the power. 
So if you take, uh, let me give you an example of the, of the way the market's moved. Um, Oracle has now worked out that it's much faster, cheaper, and easier to do the final mile integration, the final yard integration between their systems and the plethora of different customer systems that sit within their customers using RPA, because if system A has a user interface and system B has a user interface, then you can communicate through those system interfaces in exactly the same way that a human does. Hence the robotic bit. It's the robotic part of process um, that is taken on by the robots. So the stuff that you don't want to do that you have to do to be to do your job, essentially. Yeah. So we are not talking about a, you know, a Roomba or a robot physically running around your, you know, your work or your apartment. We're talking about those robotic processes that you do every day. What's what's an example of something that somebody does? Exactly. It's software that runs software, essentially. Um, but it runs software in exactly the same way that, that a person does. Um, so there is, it's very quick to implement uh, and it's relatively cheap to implement compared with big IT projects. Because if you think about it, you know, the entire raison d'etre of a, of a CIO is to build the bright, shiny new system with straight through processing. Mm-hmm. And you go to any CIO and say, you know, when, when is that going to uh, appear? And it doesn't matter how long they've been working on it. The answer is always three years. Uh, and because business changes so fast that once that system comes into place, then the business has already moved on. So IT is always playing catch up. That's the, pl- the role of, of RPA, acting as the bridge really between all of those different systems to allow humans to do what they should be doing, which is you know, thinking and acting on behalf of the customers. Yeah. And Jordan, you know, I want to ask you, you have done a bunch of implementations. Um, I want to know, like, what are some of the, you know, problems on the ground that you see that someone is having to deal with and how RPA can kind of solve that? Yeah. I I mean, I think there's, there's a few different factors. Um, you know, one is going to be just the, the amount of workload or effort. We we talk to some organizations, you know, you kind of hear the stigma of, you know, RPA is going to be able to solve X amount of number of FTEs, right? That's kind of the, 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 the generic business case behind RPA. But what we found is, you know, while that be maybe one aspect to this, we're also finding and talking to organizations where, you know, they are understaffed. They, they, they're getting home late. They don't have the ability to actually do, you know, all of the things they need to do in their, in their daily job because they have a lot of mundane, repetitive tasks, you know, data entry, you, know, you name it, right? So, you know, a great example use case, and this is on, you know, this is on a smaller scale in terms of uh, you know, SMB versus enterprise. But I had an organization I was talking to uh, last week. And one of the things that they mentioned was the insurance verification. Um, this is a healthcare client that basically sees 70 to 80 patients a day. And this is just one practice within 30 practices that this uh, corporate business owns, right? And so uh, one of the things they have to do is do insurance verification 72 hours before a patient shows up to actually get their procedure done. The reason being is that if the insurance is not valid or something's wrong with the insurance, they're not going to be able to build the insurance company, therefore make money, right? And so literally this, this lady um, was going into the patient portal, extracting the group name, the member ID, and then going to one of 55 insurance companies that service them. So Blue Cross Blue Shield, Aetna, you name it. They go into that website, they type in the information and validate that. Um, this was something that basically was not able to get done during the day and she was doing after hours, missing you know, 
our children's baseball games, after school activities. And so, you know, we were able to come in and while it did not eliminate headcount, um, we saw definitely a, a compliance, right? There was um, a lot more accuracy to this process and it helped with their billing and it helped basically overall in the, the employee satisfaction. And that's really, if I had to break it down into four quadrants, what I'm seeing as far as the results of RPA, it really falls into four buckets. And that's one being the first step of you know, business transformation or digital transformation. The second quadrant is going to be compliance. We have a lot of organizations that you know, have to adhere to certain compliance and log and audit trails. Um, and then the, the other two are going to be both in the experience quadrant, whether it's customer experience or employee experience. And those are the, really the four quadrants that we're seeing that where the RPA, or the RPA is exposing the most ROI and benefits to an organization. So when you're like sitting down for an implementation, what is kind of like that aha moment for people where they kind of realize that kind of like my life just got easier moment? When they actually see the proof of value in, 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 in reality, right? So what we'll do, we typically start um, engaging with an organization is we'll pick one simple process, right? We'll identify that process and we'll create what's called a happy path. And what I mean by that is we'll create something very simple where it's going to cross, you know, maybe one or two, three applications, but we're not going to look at all the different business exceptions because what you'll find when you start working with an organization up front is there are multiple ways of accomplishing the same type of task. And so we kind of kind of coined that term as bot translation, right? How this is the way the human does it. Well, this is the way a bot would do it, right? So what we do is we work with them to really understand this initial process, identify it, document that process and get it into UiPath. And once they're able to see not only how this robot will be able to do that same process that they do, but how they execute it much faster with 100% accuracy and do it as many times as they want, basically in a 24-hour session, they have that aha moment. I mean, I've seen people, you know, almost come with tears in their face, break the pencil, you name it. Um, but it's it's exciting. You know, we like I've even seen it in these workshops. We're not we're not even doing something applicable to the business in these workshops. We're doing a bot on you know data scraping some information from an external website, you know, bringing it to an Excel file and having that emailed to you, maybe like the deal of the day on bestbuy.com where we can extract the, the deal of the day price as well as the was price and show the difference of you know, the deal that you're able to get every day on Best Buy's website. They're able to execute that bot in the workshop, you know, and I've had people raise their hands, you know, having that aha moment, clapping, saying woohoo, you know, getting excited. So, you know, that's the feeling that I get when, you know, I'm talking to these clients. It's, it's a level of excitement and, and almost a, a lift of burden off their shoulders. It's pretty amazing. The, um, I can give you an example that came out today, actually. Um, it was um, a lady called Valerie Yong, uh, Yong Tan, who is, um, uh, works with Singtel in Singapore. She's a learning development manager. She's been with the organization 46 years, and she created a robot that cuts the time taken to produce 55 reports that she needs to do on a weekly basis from four and a half hours to one minute. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. That, that's, that's the repetitive, mundane, boring work that no one should do. I mean, a lot of people do. There's a guy, uh, there's a guy called Ian, Ian Barkin, who's a, a friend of mine, um, ex-colleague actually. He now works with an organization called uh, Symphony, um, who've been, recently been acquired by uh, Sykes. It's a call center operation. And, um, and he describes this as process sediment. It builds up in organizations over the years in the same way that sedimentary rock builds up over millions of years as layer upon layer of rock builds up. In the same way within organizations, you end up with these processes that build up along with technology as more and more 
um, user interface activities or um, systems get involved. And, and in the core, you might still be using some you know, green screen application um, on COBOL, written in COBOL, that, that sits at the core of this operation. And you end up with this layer upon layer of rubbish that you have to deal with. And what's interesting, particularly when talking to students, is that you know, they just won't, they're not prepared to put up with the way that you know, I and, and Jordan and, uh, and possibly you have, have had to put up with these, this mundane activity that you need to do on a day-to-day basis. Because they'll say, why are you doing it this way? It just doesn't, doesn't make any sense. That's the power of automation, not actually job cuts, because it's one of the big myths that automation is going to lead to job cuts. In actual fact, <clears throat> a brilliant quote from, a, um, from one of the chief executives of, our, of one of our customers said that um, since we put in automation, the mood music of our organization has changed. We have happier employees, and we now measure our service in terms of compliments rather than complaints. Yeah, I love that. I mean, you just think of all, we've all done it, right? It's all the associate level, entry level tasks. You know, it's the finance team running all of these, these things that they do, you know, oh, well, at the end of the month, every month we have to do, you know, we're heads down for the next two days trying to figure out blank. It's like stuff like that. It just feels as antiquated as, you know, planting individual seeds in the ground, right? It's like we... We just never really had the wake up moment of like, hey, maybe we shouldn't have, you know, human beings doing this repetitive stuff over and over again. Um, and kind of feels like, you know, with UiPath and with RPA, now we can kind of see the other side. Um, looking forward a little bit further than that guy, what does this look like as it starts to spread across different industries? Oh, it already is. I mean, you know, two years ago, uh, if you take the Fortune 500 um, companies, so the largest companies in the world, um, we had five as customers. And I don't mean 5%, I mean five. Today, we have over 60% of the Fortune 500 as customers. But interestingly, if you look at, look at the adoption rate, it varies by country. So in the US, it's 35%. In the UK, it's 35%. 40% in France, 50% in Germany, 80%, 80% in Japan. And the reason for that isn't anything to do with the technology. It's about the socioeconomic and demographic realities of living and working in those countries. So in France and Germany, for instance, due to the power of the work unions and works councils, it's easier for organizations to scale and be more agile using robots than it is using humans. In Japan, uh, the Japanese population as a whole peaked in 2010. So the entire Japanese population is falling and all the baby boomers are now retiring so that the average Japanese worker, office worker, works 60 hours a week. Um, the Japanese government defined dangerous levels of overwork as more than 106 hours a week. So there's a word, there's a word in, in Japanese, actually, which is karashi, which, which means to work oneself to death. And people do. So what we're seeing in Japan today will be replicated in every industrial and post-industrial nation over the next 20 years, just through demographics. So this is spreading out across all industries and all geographies incredibly fast. And for a four-year-old business, our revenues are very evenly split. So it's about 30%, 30, you know, a third in, in, uh, in uh, uh, Americas, a third in Europe, and a third in Asia. That's very unusual for, for a young business. 
And at one point, Guy, um, wasn't, if correct me if I'm wrong, um, was it 45% of your, your business associated with BFSI, uh, banking and the finance and, and insurance? It and was. then yeah. um, it's obviously spread, spread across multiple verticals. Yes. I mean, most, most companies, you know, start with the, with the Excel jockeys, you know, they, they start in finance because that's, that's where the majority of this mundane work takes place. Um, interestingly, one of, one of the big four um, audit companies, I can't tell you which one for obvious reasons in a second, <clears throat> has, has now automated 45% of their audit business uh, using UiPath and a number of different tools. Um, and of course, that means that the, the, the first and second years that do that boring, mundane stuff that you, you talked about, Ian, no longer have to do that. And they can actually charge them out at a greater rate. So not only are they making huge savings in terms of the, the actual audit, they're also then billing out their people at a higher rate more earlier. So, of course, they, they don't want to tell anyone that they're doing that at the moment <laughs> until everyone's doing it. Yeah, exactly. It's a competitive advantage until people know. Exactly. One of the great, I mean, about two and a half years ago, we had the situation where a global motor manufacturer um, automated a number of its finance functions um, and, uh, and we reduced the headcount of those functions, you know, the work required for those functions by 75%. So um, I was out talking about it. And um, we got a call from the, um, from the outsourcing company that was previously doing that saying, can you stop talking about this, please? And we said, why? It's a great case study. And they said, yes, because we did it, but we didn't tell the customer. So um, no one can get away with that now because of, you know, podcasts like this and the work that the analysts are doing and educating the market and so on. But, you know, there's still that mentality that we're going to keep it quiet while we do it ourselves because there is competitive advantage in the same way that there was competitive advantage over business process outsourcing 20 years ago as organizations moved their stuff to, you know, low-cost locations like India and Malaysia and so on because they were able to do their internal operations cheaper and faster than they were by doing it onshore. You know, a job in Mumbai was a third of the cost of someone sitting in Michigan or Manchester. Well, and it seems like there's a real opportunity for the workforce and people in these type of roles to, instead of, you know, answering what it's answering why, right? It's like, instead of being the finance person who is, or the accountant who's just, you know, spitting out reports um, that you could actually help analyze. You could be closer to the business if you're in finance, you could be closer to the business if you're in IT or, or whatever it is. Um, do you kind of feel like once people once organizations get those hours back that they then can reallocate that talent for things that are much, you know, more human centric and higher priority. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, um, Jordan can give some examples, but just on a, on a sort of meta level, um, we, I was at a, a conference with Forrester uh, in Chicago a couple, uh, last year. And um, I was talking about the impact of automation on the culture of organizations. I was talking to a, a chap called Dave Johnson, who's one of the sort of senior analysts in that space. Um, we, we ended up talking along the same track, but in some slightly different perspectives, because he, he was involved with employee engagement and the uh, and improved employee engagement means improved customer experience. I wondered whether RPA and automation was actually going to lead to improved employee engagement, basically based on that quote from the chief executive of one of those companies that I mentioned. Um, and so we did a research study, and that's exactly what turned out, that robots actually may lead to happier, more engaged employees. And Dave came up with a great uh, description of that. He said that 
Um, the true and key differentiator for someone, whether someone's in, engaged or not within the work that they do is whether the work that they're doing, they, they feel is important to the company. Because if they're, if they're doing boring and mundane and repetitive stuff, they don't feel that's important. But if they can do stuff that's important, they feel is important to the job, then their, their employee engagement levels shoot up. When we, I, I haven't told you guys this, but so when we um, first started Mission and we were working on a bunch of different, you know, we had, we were reaching, you know, millions of people every month and, and working on our network of podcasts and all this stuff. And, and our head of growth, Dylan, who is our, our digital wizard, um, every answer to every question was like, Hey, Dylan, could you do this? He's like, Oh, just, I'll just get a bot to do it. It was like every single answer. And so we, from like very early days of building this particular company, it was kind of our first, you know, foray into being able to do that stuff. And I can tell you firsthand, it is so liberating. Like it, it feels so good when every single, especially like, you know, managing all sorts of different types of scrapers and all the different things that you need to do on your digital landscape to just know that something is in the background working on it. Like we automated so many processes in the early days. It, it's so much easier and it, it really does feel liberating to be able to have that stuff working in the background while you work on higher priority things. Absolutely. I, I can attest to that. We, we were, we were one of the same, you know, the same boat, right? We were like, look, if we're going to be in this business, we're going to, we're going to drink our Kool-Aid, take our own medicine, whatever you want to call it. And, and not only do you see, you know, when you start implementing it, you know, the liberation that you talked about, but when you start seeing the results, you know, it's amazing. Um, you know, we had some, we had some bots that we built that were very focused on, you know, recruiting and finding the talent because, you know, early on in this, in, in this, in this, this industry and still today, there's a huge talent gap in the market. And, you know, we, you know, when you think about the recruiting aspect or building that talent or finding the people that had some deployments, you know, that they've had successful, you know, it was tough, right? You know, LinkedIn has definitely changed the, changed the game as it relates to, you know, interactions and, and networking. But, um, you know, we had created some, some bots internally and you know, the results that we were able to accomplish, you know, we would have had to have so many more working hours, which would have took our focus off some of the things that we need to do to get this business running. So. I completely can uh, can understand that. <laughs> yeah, what's what's interesting? What, what's interesting is that um, I'm doing I'm doing a lot of work at the moment with the uh, the venture capital and private equity organisations um, because they've realised this as well. So their portfolio companies are automating from day one yeah. because yeah. they can scale so much faster using robots than they can using people. That's exactly right, Guy. And I, I've got a I got a great story for you guys. We just finished this, and and this will really attest to uh, you know those private equity firms. And that's you know I, I really have you know been thinking about the same strategy as we just helped one of the, one of the portfolio companies. So we had an organization that um, has uh, 140 uh, franchisees, and you know being able to get the financials that they needed. Um, and getting out to the GL level, it basically was taking them about the 16th of every month. Uh, to report their financials to the their private equity firm, which you know basically is very hard to make financial decisions and strategic decisions if you're getting the financials uh, mid month every every month, right? And so we came in, we we spoke with the client uh, within basically about almost four weeks with testing and getting into production. Uh, we were able to build the spot to help them close the books, and as of about last week, they are able to to close their books, run the spot, get the reports to the private equity firm in less than four hours. 
So they went from basically about 16 days to less than four hours, which, you know, you bring that use case to the other you know, portfolio companies to this equity equity firm. And it's a, you know, it's a very successful story. So that's wild. But it, it's like one of those things you have to see to believe, right? Cause you're, it's like, you hear that stuff and you're, you just think you're like, well, is that really true? And then you're like, how long do you think it would take you to scrape, you know, 700 uh, LinkedIn profiles or whatever it is. And I can tell you that process would be less than four hours if we had the, the computing power and the throughput. I think it really is you know, slowed up a little bit on their system. So it's amazing the efficiency and the, you know, just the accuracy that we can get in that amount of time. We, we recruited a thousand people in the last hundred days of last year. So we know all about that. Okay. So I, I want to talk about, uh, you know, clearly, you know, we're drinking the, the Kool-Aid on, on RPA um, and UiPath is, um, you know, one of the hottest, I, I hate this phrase like hottest startups uh, because it's kind of a silly thing, especially with a company of, of your scale, you know, but it truly is on, on every list of, you know, top 10 startups uh, doing amazing things. Um, but I, I want to take our, our rose colored glasses off for a second yeah. and say like, what, what can't RPA do? Where is this going wrong? Is, is there a possibility that, you know, this is, is not as great as we think it is? Um, but I'm curious to your thoughts. Okay. Um, yeah, as I mentioned at the start, you know, RPA is just another tool for your toolkit. In fact, you know, about three years ago, I came up with the analogy of, of, of golf clubs. So, um, if you're standing on the tee, I'm not a golfist by any means, but if you're standing on the tee and you've got to get five, 400 yards down, down the fairway, you know, over the bunkers across the green and into the hole, um, you need different clubs. So you can consider RPA to be like the driver. So it gets you off the tee and, and fair old way down the fairway, but then you need the wedges and, and, and then the putter to get that into the hole. That's a combination of the AI tools. Um, I got famous last year, by the way, for, for saying that AI is bollocks because most, most organizations that say <laughs> we want AI and we need AI and have no idea what they're talking about. But AI is just a collection of tools as well. So you can think of it like a, like a Venn diagram. Um, so you've got all of the existing legacy systems within your organization, the, the business process management, enterprise resource planning, customer relationship management, and so on, systems, um, and, and all the legacy green screen applications as well, sitting within your organization. Um, they're never going to come together in one blob in the middle. But what we're seeing is that they're coming very slightly closer together. And where they overlap, where those Venn diagrams overlap, that's where RPA and AI really adds value because it glues the whole lot together. And it doesn't matter how those systems change, the robots are now clever enough, in inverted commas, to adapt to those changing circumstances. Where it goes wrong is basically with IT. So most of the people that, that set up RPA organizations uh, and most of the people that were hired early tended to come from business. They tended to come from shared service and outsourcing and uh, global business service units, um, whatever it's called, GICs, global in-house centers. So they were very business focused. And this was seen as a business tool to obviate the need to go to IT because IT were just too slow. If you connected everything through APIs, then it was going to take forever and be really, really expensive. So IT saw this uh, at best as a distraction, at worst as an existential threat. So if you think about the, the, the raison d'etre of a, of, a, of a CIO is to build the bright, shiny new system. Um, you know, if RPA with AI tools has actually fixed the problem that you are trying to fix 
by using the big big IT system, then it could actually be existential um, in, in its threat to you. So it's taken us a long time as an industry, uh, we're still small, but as a market, to actually work well with IT. Um, we're not the best at it, actually. That's Blue Prism. Blue Prism have done a fantastic job uh, of building really good relationships with IT. But we're fixing that. Well, I think that IT fundamentally has changed. So therefore, the market you know, is requiring new leaders to be new kinds of CIOs. I mean, the CIOs that we talk to that are, that are the cutting edge CIOs are looking for every tool and that they can get their hands on that connects their business, that focuses on the customer, that focuses on their, you know, the customer experience, the employee experience, all of those things. Um, when you're talking about employee experience, I mean, there's no, you know, there's no tool, like you said, quite like RPA to be the, that driver, you know, in, in the, in the golf bag. So, I mean, I think it's just one of those things that how IT was done 10 years ago is completely different than now. So therefore, um, you know, IT of the future, you know, how much time you're spending with customers, um, how much time you're spending with employees, like what those folks are working on is fundamentally changing so fast that I think the the IT leaders of the future are going to be constantly looking for things. Well, that that's true, except, you know, it's always good to have a disaster story. Um, so we, we are currently in the position where a, a global another global motor manufacturer isn't the one, the same one that I talked about earlier. Um, Everest's group, um, big analyst firm, did a study, of, well, did a, a paper on scaling automation from pilot through to what they termed as pinnacle, so where automation spread throughout the entire organization. This global motor manufacturer started right at the top with, with citizen developers. So basically, they gave everyone in their global business service unit a license to just automate the bits of their job they didn't want to do. Yep. Users absolutely loved this. IT said, what the hell are you doing? And they put a stop on it. In fact, worse than that, they've thrown UiPath out of that account. And they're actually using another um, vendor that is, is a challenger, but it's, it's much more IT-centric. Um, and why the user said, well, you know, why have you done that? Because UiPath is so easy to use and this other one isn't. And they said, that's exactly the reason we've done it because we control it then, you don't. So whether that exceeds in future is another bit, but there are still some dinosaurs around. Yeah, I mean, no, totally. And and I think that in the early adopter phase of this sort of stuff, I think that, you know, obviously all of this is still extremely early. But I would also say that, you know, the rise of citizen development, the rise of hackathons, the rise of empowering your employees is just starting right now. I mean, we've talked to a bunch of CIOs and CTOs and CDOs that are just starting to do like their first or second hackathon. So you're talking about like just the entire mind shift of the organization that the gal sitting in finance could come up with the next great business process. I mean, that still is so nascent that, you know, we do need to shift thinking around like what employees can do. And I think that that's what's so empowering about, you know, Jordan, some of the things that you're talking about where, you know, going from 16 days to four hours, you know, some of these like massive exponential shifts in timing. Um, are there any, you know, Jordan, have you ever got pushback from, from leadership in these conversations of, of people who are just confused by the product or confused how it helps or worried that it'll take jobs or something like that? 
I mean, I think that's a, you know, the worry of taking jobs, I think is a, is a fear that kind of, you know, comes up, you know, initially. Um, but once we start talking, I think that can be alleviated, you know, between some of my leadership, they've had over 160 RPA deployments and not one of those have they said employees have been let go. They've either had, you know, the ability to, to ship those people over to other jobs in the organization or be able to do basically more with less and focus on high critical tasks. When we are talking to some of these organizations up front is they have a very hard time comprehending how little the initial cost is and how much how much they can gain from basically, you know, a simple or small engagement or you know, one process being automated. You know, a lot of these C-level executives, they're used to a very big spend, you know, kind of a facade of an ROI, you know, three, you know, three years, six years, you know, whatever it may be. So that's very hard for some of these people initially to comprehend until we kind of show it in action. And that's why we've taken that step to do kind of that proof of value to really show that, you know, this is really what you're going to get for this amount of dollar. Yeah, I mean, we've we, we, we've seen some we've seen similar. So the 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 elements required for an organisation to get into this automation first mindset. If you think about it, you know, we started with internet first. So every organisation had to have a website. Then we went mobile first. Everyone had to have a mobile website and communicate via via mobile devices. And then when we're still in cloud first thinking, so organisations moving increasingly to the cloud. And now we think that, um, along with our partners, that the automation first is is a way of thinking about this. And that's exactly what we're seeing in terms of organizations, big and small, that are starting to think about providing all of their people, every one of their workers, a robot to partly unattended to do the stuff that they don't want to do. So unattended robot does the stuff you don't want to do, that boring stuff, and partly attended to do the stuff that you do want to do, to help you to do the stuff that you want to do. So I want to talk about, you know, the future a little bit. Uh, obviously, we don't have the crystal ball. You know, UiPath has said that in three to five years, you know, RPA and AI will be, you know, productivity tool, use the same way you use Excel and PowerPoint or, um, you know, used extremely commonplace, right? You know, famously, Bill Gates wanted you know, a computer on, on every desk. Right. And that was like this big, hairy, audacious goal that nobody kind of believed would happen. Um, you know, in the future guy, are we looking at every single person has robots running all the time on their computer? Like, what does this look like? Yeah. I mean, essentially, I mean, um, I defer to Andrew Eng and that's NG, um, who is the, um, professor of AI at uh, Stanford university. And he said AI is like the new is like electricity. It's the new electricity. And frankly, unless you're an eco mentalist, no one gives a toss about you know how the electricity is generated. As long as we, when you turn the switch, the light comes on. That's what's going to happen to this this automation stuff. It's going to be it's going to disappear, and it's not going to disappear because it's not going to get used. It's going to disappear because it's going to get used everywhere. Uh, and so you know, one robot, a robot for every person, is a realistic future. For, for the market. That's not just us, not just UiPath, but you know, all our competitors as well. This is, this, is the, this is the future that is augmenting rather than replacing human activity. And it feels inevitable. Like it feels like why wouldn't every single person 
want this right now, right? Like that's what it feels like to me. I mean, do you, you know, and, and you can share a little bit more about your role as chief evangelist. I mean, it seems like this needs a lot of evangelizing. <laughs> like it seems like more and more people need to know about the power of this kind of like once they got the demo, then, you know, they'd be sold, but just not enough people have got the demo. Um, I'm curious to like how you go about this mentally kind of preparing the market, preparing people for why this is so important. Well, we're going through a through a continuum of education. So, and we're doing that with the actually with the analyst firms. So, we started with Forrester, uh, with uh, Jack or Craig and Claire. Recently, written a book. Um, I highly recommend it. Actually, and in fact, you know, if uh, if your listeners want to get in touch, then we, we can provide a, a free copy. But um, uh, so Craig and Claire started the continuum with what the hell is this RPA stuff. Um, then went into, you know, what is our RPA and AI? Then we did the Dave Johnson one, which was, you know, so what impact is it having on people? Um, now we're going back to uh, another um, analyst to work on, okay, so what's the future? This is all about education. I mentioned education as being one of our, one of our three buckets where we're, we're spending our money. And, and that's important because we realize that if it is going to be ubiquitous, if it is going to be everywhere and everyone's going to have one, then anyone, everyone needs to understand what impact that's going to have on them, uh, both positive and negative. I hasten to add that it's both positive and negative. So, so we started in April 2017 with our UiPath Academy. So this is a massive open online course, a MOOC, and it provides training to everyone. And we've had, since April 2017, 357,000 people from 200 countries um, actually enroll in the course. So we extended it now, that's to build robots. Now we've extended it to, to deal with the business people. So the people who are actually gonna be putting automation into the organization, in terms of communication and HR issues and, and business issues. Um, but we've extended it again. So we now have small academy and that's for children. So aged eight to 14 year olds school children learning about automation, building robots to play games. In fact, one of the first ones we did was in, uh, was in Bucharest. And um, one of the children afterwards went to their mother and said, um, mommy, I have a ghost in my computer, which uh, we loved. Um, and, and we're doing with students. So students are really important. Um, uh, and um, I applaud the work that Jordan's doing in this, this space as well. So students are really important because they have no idea generally what the world of work is going to be like as a result of automation. So we've, we've pledged to train up a million students in the next three years. That's just you, a million students. And we started the Academic Alliance four months ago, expecting that um, it was going to be a slow uptake by the universities, trying to put um, RPA as part of the curriculum of their, uh, of their courses, both technology courses, so computer science courses, and business courses. We've been astounded. We've had over 200 universities sign up uh, in the last four months for that. So RPA is now part of their curriculum. Which That's is, unbelievable. Yeah. And so, so moving on from that, we're also worried about the people that are worried about automation, worried about the impact of automation and AI is going to have on their jobs, on their livelihoods. So we're setting up reskilling and upskilling courses for those individuals so that we move them up the value chain. So they become much more customer and, and certainly government citizen-centric services. 
Um, and the thing I'm most proud of in terms of the education is that we're setting up courses for um, economic migrants and for refugees because we want to make those people as productive as possible, as fast as possible to the society to which they move. In other words, net tax contributors. So that gets rid of the us and them situation that we get in a lot of countries. You know. Did you ever see the, um, there was a guy who wrote a bot for, uh, for navigating New York City parking tickets. This story is in the news a couple of years ago. Um, but this guy wrote a bot for, for that basically like contests your parking ticket yeah. and it did it so well that like every single time it would get thrown out. Um, <laughs> and so it was like, it was like, whatever, however, a hundred thousand people, uh, got their citations thrown out. Um, because this guy wrote this bot. It's like you know, stuff like that where, I mean, I think just teaching, I mean, maybe we don't teach kids that lesson, but I don't know, maybe we do. I mean, I just think that like when you're, especially when you're young and you're messing around with different things and you're trying to push the limits of like, you know, things that are annoying, like that's what kids are great at. Like, Hey, this is annoying. Why am I doing this? I'm just going to build a, build a bot to solve it. Well, I'm, I'm 52 years old. And so I've been through all of, all of this. You know, the average age in our organization is 26. 40% of the people in our business have been recruited by referrals. So, you know, people recruit people who are like them. And we don't give any instruction except um, bringing someone better than you. So, so as employee number 28, I'm probably the worst person in the business now. <laughs> <laughs> but you're exactly uh, right. You know, the, the quality of the people that we're bringing in to the organization is just jaw-dropping i mean it's utterly amazing what what the what these people can do so and and jordan I, you know i want to ask about this um these classes that you're that you're spearheading but i also want to say you know according to gardner 88 percent of ui path deployments finish in six months or fewer you know and that's that's based on gardner peer reviews i mean stuff like that is really remarkable when you're talking about just like you know, speed to completion, speed to implementation, as you're going around doing the things like, you know, take home a robot and you have that kind of stat in your back pocket. And I don't know what, you know, the Jolt AG implementation, implementation time is. I'm sure it's even faster than that uh, if, if we had that data. But uh, I'm, I'm curious, like when you're going around talking to people about how they can do this, um, what, it, what, are, what is their kind of feedback? It's amazing. <laughs> I mean, literally, um, you know, these workshops have generated so much interest for us. We've had, we, we just had one in Charlotte last week. Um, what was it? What's today? What's Tuesday? Yeah, so, today's Tuesday. Yeah. So last Thursday we had one in Charlotte. We had 71 people register. Um, I think around 43 showed up. Um, these are, you know, variety of different, you know, verticals, large, small enterprise, you name it. I mean, to give you an example, the Day I day I, I went home that night. I woke up in the morning, and um, I had already seen an NDA come through, and someone had already sent me their process and asked me to scope it. <laughs> so you know the hype around you know them coming in and, and seeing you know basically we start off you know with what is RPA the awareness applicability yeah. to the market. We got we have them build their own bots. Literally, they're able to leave this workshop with two bots. They're able to take home you know and use. And then, you know, they're going home that night, sending an NDA and sending over their process to be automated. I mean, you can't literally ask for more than that, right? I mean, and, and on top of that, in the body of the email, they asked for a quote on X number of bots 
a studio and an orchestrator, which is a part of the UiPath licensing. So, you know, not only are we implementing it quick, but they're coming to us quick <laughs> right after that workshop. So the experience has been amazing. And um, what's cool about it is we're getting a variety of different opportunities, you know, from a manufacturing system, you know, that looks very antiquated to, um, you know, a large hospital who's looking to, um, to automate, uh, you know, their EHR system um, due to the, you know, inoperability between their you know, clinical systems, lab systems, and, you know, hospital systems. So, you know, the, the diversity of the, of the opportunities and the, the people that are coming here and leaving here with, you know, ready to roll, it's, it's amazing. I want to talk about our good friend, Pal9000. Um, <laughs> not to be confused with Hal9000. Shall I tell you how that name came about? Yeah, I would lo- like share the uh, share the pe- okay. the Pal nine thousand. Uh, I, I, I I would suggest um, this is a code name, by the way, so it's not going to be called that when it when it's released. But um, oh, uh, so it's okay. It's an alias. It's an alias. Yeah. So so what happened was that Brandon Knott, um, again another uh, of our execs who who was a customer um, at Wentworth, he he is now running all of our attended operations and is doing a phenomenal job, but he. He developed himself, built himself a personal information manager. You remember the 80s that, you know, everyone had to have personal information managers, those little scions and those the Newtons and so on that sort of ran their, ran their lives. Now we call them mobile phones, but, you know, that was, that was them. And um, so he designed PAL 9000 to actually run your life for you. So this is both work and home. So it would automate a number of tasks, um, for both work activities and, and home activities. The reason you call it PAL 9000 is that um, uh, most of your listeners, I think, were, are going to be um, much younger than those that uh, saw the um, film 2001 A Space Odyssey, which uh, came out in 1969, uh, Stanley Kubrick film, um, which had uh, a, a computer, an AI in it called HAL 9000, H-A-L 9000, uh, the apocryphal story was, was called HAL. It was because uh, every letter was one letter above IBM, which was, uh, sorry, one letter <laughs> before IBM. So uh, HAL before IBM. Um, but anyway, HAL killed all the crew because um, it went mad. Um, so, so Brandon developed PAL 9000. It was, it was, PAL, it was your PAL. It wasn't going to kill you. Um, to automate all of the sort of mundane tasks that you do at home as well as your business. And so that we think, regardless of what it's going to be called, is going to be the interface between you as an individual and all the systems, both at home and at work, that you operate in. Um, Daniel has a, um, has a phrase, no, no, um, no application. What we now think is that when someone joins a company, um, they have to go and learn Salesforce and ServiceNow and SAP and Oracle and all the other systems that that company uses. But actually, there's a company called SAFO, that's S-A-P-H-O, that focuses on skinning those applications um, so that the user doesn't see those. All it sees is what they need to do for their job. If you add robotics to that, if you add the RPA and AI to that, then actually a lot of that activity takes place in the background um, with the um, triggered by the human, so it's attended, um, or scheduled, scheduled, 
so that it's uh, it's done by uh, by the robot anyway, by the unattended robot. But you, in order to do your job, you only deal with the stuff you actually need to do to actually improve your your um, activity with your with your customers, be that internal or external. So that's that's the idea behind Pal. What's interesting is that it raises ethical issues. You know, who owns your robot? Who owns your Pal? So when you leave an organization, does the company own that? Do you own that? So that's something we've got to go through, I think. Okay, Jordan, I, I want to, we talked a lot about the implementation piece, but I just want to walk through an implementation real quick. Um, like what what goes into kind of the first round of that conversation? Um, what are they what are they usually asking for? And then and then how you kind of talked a little bit about length, but um, you know, how long does it approximately take depending? And I know all this depends. Yeah. So, um, I'll kind of give the, the high level umbrella version, if you will. Right. Cause there are you know, multiple variables that will, um, decrease or increase the time of an engagement, you know, depending on the number of processes, right. Um, and or internal, um, internal capabilities. Right. But, um, initially, you know, when we, when we talk to a client or we get engaged, you know, there's some sort of level of pre-engagement, right. Um, you know, there has to be some awareness, there has to be some education and there has to be, uh, some discovery. You know, we need to understand exactly what the process is um, and, you know, what, what the value is going to be and, you know, how well it's documented. Nine times out of 10, when we get involved with an organization, um, they will, you know, explain how well their process is documented. Uh, but as we dig into it and we really do some, you know, some really granular level um, discovery, we find that not only is there a lot of gaps, but um, there's, you know, there's multiple ways this is being executed, right? So I think initially, um, you know, if we, when we get engaged with the customer, the first thing we need to do is obviously get, you know, the executive buy-in, educate the, the, consumer, or the customer, um, but also really iron out, you know, what is that, um, you know, what is this initial proof of value going to look like? And as I said earlier in the, in the podcast, um, what we typically do is, is we start with just a happy path, right? There's typically a lot of business rules or business exceptions associated with the process. And what we want to do is really get down to you know, that nitty gritty, the happy path, and really show that proof of value because we can do that very quickly. We've done this in you know, less than three days, sometimes for a more complex process, about two weeks. Um, so very quick. Um, and we're able to show that value very quickly. And typically, we're going to get that into a, a non-prod environment. So we're not actually launching into production, but we're able at the end of that you know, development of that process to show the ROI or what, you know, what we're able to do to automate that process. Um, at the end of that, typically, then we're really getting the buy-in of the customer and we're going to move to what's called you know, a pilot, right? So in this stage, we're basically going to take that initial process into production. And at the same time, what we're doing you know, all of the time is building out what we call a process pipeline. And that the goal of that really is to, you know, have a continuation from initial automation, you know, through basically your, your rollout preparation, right? So there's, you know, we don't look at automation as, you know, start, stop, start, stop, start, stop. This is an iterative process where we're not only expanding on the initial automation of a certain process, but also um, expanding without the, with, throughout the organization. So we may start in finance and we may start with AP or the tax department. You know, we're also talking to treasury. We're identifying those processes. We're talking to customer service. We're identifying those processes, operations. So we're constantly in that mode from let's call it pre-engagement proof of value to pilot being able to not only select 
and build a process pipeline, but start the development of those processes um, within that engagement. Typically, you know, I look at it as kind of three stages and this is where the variables come in. And we're typically, you know, when we first get involved, we are leading the charge, right? We have business analysts on the ground, scrub masters, solution architects, and most of our development coming out of our Guadalajara office in uh, Mexico uh, due to that, really that offshore price at a nearshore rate and, um, you know, being able to work in a centralized time zone. And so a lot of the times, you know, kind of as we look into that second phase and rolling out, you know, we start really assessing, you know, is this going to be something that's going to be self-sustained in-house or is, are they looking to really, um, you know, look at this as a support model with us, right? So we'll typically look at the second phase as more of a hand-holding phase where they may are taking a bigger role in the automation and the development as well as the process identification. And then, you know, um, setting up what we call a center of excellence. And this, you know, there's, there's multiple ways you can do that, right? Um, a lot of the times, if our customers are looking to really um, expand the amount of bots they have in production and keep those maintained, but also developing new ones, you know, that's where we look into a support model. And so if you look at, let's call it five to 10 processes, you're looking at about a six to eight month engagement on average. As you expand from there, you're looking at more of a support model going forward with internal capabilities built in and um, you know, being able to you know, automate more. I can tell you that one of the first engagements we had this year, we started with one process engaged on a project, projectized work for three processes. And in that engagement of building out, let's call it four processes in about four months, um, we had a process pipeline of 71 that we're gonna be taking further. So the engagement definitely can vary. Um, but in general, you're kind of rolling from proof of value, pilot, and then basically roll out and sustainment. And there's a lot of things in between that can happen. And that's really going to be on the variability of the client and what the other capabilities in house. Yeah, there are two things I'd say about that. Um, first is um, the return on investment is, is, is the proof point, I suppose, is that 98% of customers who buy a license um, rebuy that license at the end of the first year, um, which is pretty good for a SaaS business, uh, software as a service business. But actually, that isn't the impressive number. It, as, um, as Jordan mentioned, um, the, the impressive figure is 69%. So 69% of customers buy more licenses before the first lot have actually run out. Second thing is happy path. I hate the phrase happy path. <laughs> <laughs> that, that optimum process. Because um, I was talking to a, uh, to a government minister the other day and he said, can you imagine having a happy path for bereavement counseling? You go, no, let's not even go down that route. <laughs> so, um, so no, happy path, kill it as fast as possible. <laughs> so let me tell you why we do that, right? Because, and, and, and then this is something you may, you may, you may value or, or understand from a service perspective. A lot of times these organizations, they want a quick win and sometimes they're a toe in the water kind of client. They want to, you know, they want to do something quick, but you know, they understand that there's a lot of different ways you can do this, right? So taking out the word happy path, what we want to do is to get to something quick without having to have a, a longer term engagement for, you know, handling multiple business exceptions. So if we take out the word happy path, our main goal is to basically find a process that we can automate quick, show the proof of value without having to get too engaged in terms of a price point to start the initial process of the buying, right? And that's really what it comes down to is being able to show proof of value quick 
and identifying the right process. And sometimes that's a little, you know, it's a harder conversation with organizations when they say, this is my process. I'm in this department. I want this process to be automated first. Well, that's going to take X amount of weeks longer, right? So that's where we get into that conversation of quote unquote happy path. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it comes down to, it comes down, I mentioned AI, you know, where we're, where we're putting our money. Um, and AI falls into four buckets. So uh, those four buckets are, are visual understanding. In other words, understanding what, so the system understands what they can see on the screen in exactly the same way that a human does. Um, document understanding, so that any paper document that comes into an organization, the system will understand what it is and then strip out the data from that, be that a, an invoice or a purchase order or an email or whatever it might be. Um, process understanding, which I'll come to in a second, because uh, it answers this question, and conversational understanding, in other words, um, natural language processing, um, so, that, so that robots will be controlled by voice um, uh, ultimately. Um, but coming back to process understanding, process understanding and, and getting to that happy path is, is twofold. So you need to identify which process is going to be most appropriate for, for automating in the first place. And process understanding, so, we, so there are organizations like Minit, uh, that's M-I-N-I-T, and Solonis, that's C-E-L-O-N-I-S, that are involved in that, in that process mining, process mapping organization style of, uh, of business. So Solanus will look at all of the variances around and the bottlenecks and the exceptions around the process and work out that, that happy path, work out that optimum route through that. The output of that at the moment is a picture. It's a map that the Lean Six Sigma process improvement people can use within organizations to optimize that particular process. What we're working on now is that towards the end of this year, um, we'll come up with a minimum viable product, which takes the slowness output and turns it into a, an XAML script, a XAML script that becomes a robot. So essentially what we're starting to build, we're not there yet, but starting to build is self-building robots. So the system will watch what the human does, work out when there's repetitive activity, work out that what that optimum route is, that happy path, uh, and then build itself and then say, okay, I can automate this process for you now. Now that's pretty cool. The second part of process understanding is that processes change over time. They always do. So as exception levels build up, um, and so the robot has to come back to the human to, for, for validation, what we're now starting to build, and this is further out, by the way, so this is roadmap stuff, is that the, the system itself will watch where the exceptions are reconfigure itself to meet those new expectations and then publish itself back into the system. So that's self-healing robots. So you get self-building robots and self-healing robots. That will accelerate the adoption even further than it is at the moment. Absolutely. And Guy, just so you know, I will never, this is the last time you're going to hear me say happy path. Optimal route is the way I'm going now. Thank you. <laughs> Optimal route yep. will make a great horse name or, uh, or, a, uh, or like, I don't know, a fantasy football team. Um, Guy, you mentioned at the top that the three buckets that you're focusing on education, AI, and partners. We kind of touched on the education and the AI piece. I'm curious um, about the third bucket, partners, and, and how you view that. Um, yeah, so so we talked a bit about um, 
the technology partners. So that's the, the big independent software vendors uh, and the, the smaller organizations that are involved in, in AI that want to bait themselves into our platform because we're, we're growing so fast. Um, but actually, it's the implementation partners that, that are absolutely critical to us. So, so Jordan and his happy band are the epitome of what we're looking for in a partner. So they train their people up. In fact, Jordan is, himself has, has actually um, got certification in, in UiPath, which is fantastic. Um, but the, the value of the partners is that we can scale so much faster. And the value add that they provide in terms of the relationship, it's the C-suite of the, their clients is so much stronger than we could ever have. We don't have, as a software vendor, the relationship with the C-suite of organizations is very rare. In fact, where we do, they generally join us as, uh, as employees, including our CFO, Barry Myers, who is, uh, who is in the C-suite of, uh, of HP. But that's by the by. So the, the value of partners is that we can only scale linearly if we hire a whole load of salespeople, but we can scale exponentially across geography and across service line and across industry if the partners get behind us and our competitors, because I think that there is a there is an argument that where a customer wants a, an automation anywhere or a blue prism or a cofax or a work fusion, you know those they have to have that capability. But where they get behind us, get behind UiPath as an implementer, uh, I think the value of that is is not one plus one equals two; it's one plus one equals five, and that's where the value of of, of Jordan and and Jolt really comes in. Uh, Jordan, what what do you think? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the amount of traction that we've had with you guys with, you know, not only from existing relationships, but from the, uh, you know, the, the co-marketing efforts that we're doing with the workshops, um, you know, has is, is been amazing. We are, uh, you know, we're, we, bleed, we bleed the, you know, was blue, I guess now, the, you know, the, the orange of, of UiPath. And, uh, <laughs> orange is know, the new blue. Exactly, exactly. I like that. Um, so yeah, no, we're, we're, we're excited about the partnership. You know, the reason we really chose you guys, we did some evaluation up front and you know, it was, it was inevitable. Um, and like you said, I think you, know, you guys were the, you know, still are the undisputed leader in the RPA space, but you know, the ease of use and just the, the, op the openness as it related to the Academy, you know, UiPath go connect, you know, the resources are out there. And I think that, you know, if you are, one of those, you know, individuals that are, you know, that are worried or you're, you know, you're, you're trying to understand where RPA fits in. The biggest thing that you can do is, is literally go to uipath.com and there is a literally a thing right there that you click and you can become certified. You know, if you spend some time, basically about four weeks, you can be, have a UiPath certification. And that's, that's the value that you guys have been able to provide is just the openness, you know, the partnership interaction. Um, in the, the academy of being able to educate our people and, and get them to hit the ground running. So it's been amazing. You know, and, and I, wanted to, I wanted to follow up with how hard it is to build an ecosystem and to build a platform. I, I'm curious, Guy, you know, obviously the company, I think they're, you know, has raised over a billion dollars, um, you know, reported by TechCrunch, $7 billion valuation, it's a massively huge problem and it's something that as we talked about has is going to unlock you know trillions of dollars of value across businesses all over the world and i'm just curious like how do you methodically build 
that ecosystem and all the different parts and the education and all those things to make sure that, um, you know, we have enough people who are going to be able to work on this. Um, this is probably the quote of the podcast. We give shit loads away for free. <laughs> you you cannot, I mean, when, when I, when I joined, um, all of the vendors were charging for training. Um, because frankly, we weren't making a, a lot, large amount of money out of licenses. So I said, you know, you've got to give that stuff away for free. Um, in order to build a community of people who are passionate about, about this automation stuff, then you have to make it as easy as possible to use. You have to make it as easy as possible to buy. You have to make it as easy as possible to learn. And that's really the basis on which we built the business. And it's not just me, of course, but um, you know, the, the entire organization has, has got behind this, this open mentality. And the, the upshot is that we are spectacularly easy to work with, both as a, both as a, a software vendor for, for customers, but also for partners. Um, you know, we don't go for this, you know, uh, Daniel had this, uh, had this famous phrase, you know, uh, what well, it was actually put into the, uh, into our recruitment uh, platform, um, you know, no suits, no bullshit, you know. Um, and, and that's, that's us as an organization. That's why we managed to attract an amazing community of people to be employees and an even more amazing group of people to be partners. And it's that openness openness to new thought, openness to new activities, openness to new um, opportunities, really, that has really driven us as an organization. And it's that openness and humility, you know, because we're, you know, we're still a small business and a small business in a, in a small market. But you know, Daniel talks about, about humility as being a key differentiator. And I was talking to a, a forester analyst he said that um, culture, you, you may think you're banging on about culture too much, but you're not. If anything, it's, it's even more important. But it's not just important for us. It's important for every organization that values the human capital, values their people to make it as easy as possible for them to do their job and allow them the wing to really fly within their company. So a good example of that is a, is a government federal agency you had 790 people. And, um, and so they put in a, uh, a response for, uh, for a proposal, you know, an RFP that, uh, that asked for the RPA vendors to cut 50% out of their headcount. They still, they're using UiPath, they still have 790 people doing those tasks, but they're now doing 70% more work and they're happier. And that's the critical point because this is a cultural issue. It's not a technology issue. And that's really the message that I, I and everyone within UiPath wants to spread you know, in things like this podcast. All right. I have one more question. Um, yeah. I've never been to Bucharest. I, share why you know it's cool that you have a headquarters in a place where, you know, it's not 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 the tech capital of the world, but it's it's a really important place, um, you know, and obviously critical to the founding team. Um, I'm I'm curious, you know, having that access. What what's it like there? What's the technology landscape like there? Um, I, I need to visit. 
Okay. So, so first of all, we, we moved our corporate headquarters to New York. Um, the reason for that is that, you know, ultimately in, in whatever time, if, if it's possible, then we will probably go public. Um, by the way, that's not the end game. Um, I'll come back to that. Um, but secondly, um, Romania has just a phenomenal ability to produce really high quality coders. Um, I don't know why, um, but the the value of the people that are there, and as I said, you know, they're all uh, aged in their mid twenties or earlier, um, is just amazing. I was there last week, and the quality of the people that we've got within our organisation is just amazing. And it started right from the start. So you know, people like Razvan Atim, who's um, has just flown. He's just an incredible guy. Another guy called um, uh, Gabriel Panna is now uh, based in the US, but he is an, an incredible advocate of the development of, of Romania as a country and the spread of Romania as a country since, since communism. And the downside, of course, is that um, you know, everything to Romanians is bullshit. Uh, nothing is true unless you actually demonstrate it. So in terms of proofs of concept, in terms of pilots, they're absolutely committed to demonstrating that wide-eyed moment that everyone gets when they realize the value of this RPA stuff because it's in their nature, it's in their DNA because of the communism and Ceausescu and all the rest of it. So it's a, very, it's a phenomenal country. And Bucharest itself is known as Little Paris. And if you ever go there, it's because the architecture is Paris. It is a stunning place to visit. Okay, let's get in the lightning round. This is going to be a fun one because I'm going to fire questions at both of you. These questions are fast and easy, just like the lightning platform from Salesforce. You can go to salesforce.com slash employee experience. That's salesforce.com slash employee experience to learn more about Lightning fast employee experience on the world's number one CRM. We love Salesforce platform. You should check them out. All right. Lightning round questions. Are you both ready? Yep. Yep. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? Guy, we'll start with you. LinkedIn. Jordan? LinkedIn, absolutely. <laughs> both of you. Uh, funny. Um Number two, favorite thing to cook or eat? Guys, start with you. I'm British. It's curry, obviously. <laughs> breakfast burritos every morning. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love a good breakfast burrito. Um, number three, what is your favorite vacation spot? Well, I was in Yorkshire last week for the Great Yorkshire Show. It is an amazing place, and I can heartily recommend the Great Yorkshire Show to everybody every year. It is the ultimate in agricultural shows. And I'm not being paid by them, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I would have to say um, every year we've been, uh, the past few years for Thanksgiving as a family, we've been going to Anguilla. And uh, it's just a time during the holidays where just sit back, relax, and take my mind off everything. So I have to say uh, Anguilla for right now. What would you be more surprised by? That RPA classes are taught in high school or that 
somebody builds a, we'll say, $100 million business by themselves with all robots? I'm expecting both. Yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> uh, what happens first? I would say probably the high school. It's already happening. Yeah. <laughs> so there's the challenge for your listeners. Build a $100 million business just using robots. There you go. Okay, guy, this one's for you. What is your best advice for a first-time chief evangelist? Go and talk to the analysts because the analysts are the route to achieving global education at very low cost. In fact, you can do it for free to start with. And there's a guy you need to talk to called Kevin Lucas. That's K-E-V-I-N, and that's L-U-C-A-S, who's the AR, that's Analyst Relations Expert at Forrester. He is a genius. So the reason that we grew so fast is that I got us into the top quadrant or wave or whatever the whatever you pinnacle, call it what you will, um, within six months of joining. And that's because I had established relationships with the analysts. So if you want to build a business really quickly, get visibility through the analyst firms. Jordan, for you, I'll say you've done a ton of implementations. What's your best advice for the one thing you need to make sure you either do or don't do in every implementation? Select the right process. And don't do? Automate a broken process. Uh, okay, all right. I was going to say ignore IT. Very true. They, they can lock you up quickly. Hey, you know, we, this is an IT podcast. You got to give our, give our people love here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Get IT brought in early. Get everybody brought in early, that's for sure. Yeah, there you go. IT is required and needed on day one. They have to be comfortable from a compliance and governance perspective because otherwise it's going to kick you in the ass. Yeah. Okay, final question. Tell me something that you predict will benefit the world due to RPA in the next, we'll say five years. I think helping with uh, catastrophes. Um, I've seen it already a little bit happening and be able to handle uh, natural disasters and catastrophes in terms of getting to the public quicker, being able to you know, help these people faster. Um, I think that's going to be a, a big thing that RPA is going to directly affect. That's a good one. Uh, for me, it's government. Um, if government can actually provide better citizen services for the money that they've got, in regardless of which country you're talking about, um, then that's going to be the real impact of RPA in the next five years. Awesome, guys. This has been great having you on. I'm glad we did a super deep dive on RPA, our first foray into it here on IT Visionaries. Um, we will be following along UiPath, Jolt AG, and, and the process. If anyone wants to uh, wants to reach out to both of you, we'll link up um, your profiles here in the, in the show notes. Um, any final thoughts, Guy? Uh, no, it's been fun. Thank you very much indeed, Ian. We've got to do this again. Uh, and same with you, Jordan. Absolutely. Thank you uh, very much. It's been awesome. And uh, hopefully you can see the, the passion coming through our voice. It's, a, it's an awesome market. Excited to be here. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's an exciting time. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely have you guys back. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. 
Thanks again to our friends at Salesforce. Did you know Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience.